Well, uh, take your Bible and be turning with me to Exodus chapter 7. And then, if you also maybe want to maybe put a bookmark or your finger at Romans chapter 1, uh, we're going to look at both of those passages this morning, Exodus chapter 7, as well as Romans chapter 1. And I'll read uh, a few verses from Exodus 7 in just a, a minute. But in our study through the book of Exodus, uh, and in particular, the life of Moses is what we've been looking at over the last several weeks. But we've come to a section in Exodus that describes what we refer to as the plagues of judgment that God poured out upon Pharaoh and all of Egypt uh, before he rescued uh, the Israelites from their bondage. Now, you won't find that word plague mentioned in, in Exodus chapter 7 or the chapters that follow but rather than calling them plagues, the Bible simply refers to them as signs and miracles or multiplied signs and wonders. And that word plague has been used throughout the centuries to describe what we see in these chapters because it really expresses an important truth. The word plague comes from a Latin term which means a severe blow or a wound which is exactly what these ten plagues were. And so that word really is important because it expresses this important truth. Now, you remember all the way back in chapter 3, uh, the Lord had told Moses that, he says, I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And so these plagues that we read about then were not without warning, uh, because God had been clear through the words he delivered to Pharaoh through Moses and Aaron. And you remember from chapter 5 how Pharaoh had initially responded. Uh, he said to Moses, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so the Bible says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened in his own sin and unbelief, and uh, he, as well as the rest of Egypt, were steeped in idolatry and the worship of false gods. But the point is, the Lord God of Israel pours out these ten plagues upon Egypt, really in order to demonstrate his power as the one who alone is God, as one who tolerates no rivals to his glory. So look with me there in chapter 7, in particular verses 3, 4, and 5, which I just want to read, and, and these sort of will summarize what's going to happen over the next five chapters. Verse 3, God says to Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So, so notice here, God is saying, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt, despite the fact that Pharaoh's not going to listen to you or to your voice. But I'm going to bring my people out of the land of their bondage by great acts of judgment, verse 4. 
or signs and wonders that I'm going to multiply throughout the land of Egypt. Verse 3. And so here God is saying to Moses, Moses, I'm going to do the miraculous. And, and these signs and these wonders, these miracles, uh, these are the plagues of judgment that God's going to pour out upon Egypt while at the same time he's going to preserve and protect his own people in the land of Goshen. So through this display of his judgment upon the Egyptians and his power of preservation and salvation in the lives of his own people, God's going to demonstrate just who he is as the one and only God who's worthy of man's worship. And so I want to speak from this subject this morning, God versus the idols of Egypt. God versus the idols of Egypt. Now you know that God, as the omnipotent God, the omniscient God, the omnipresent God who spoke the world into existence, uh, God could have done anything he wanted to in order to rescue his people out of their situation in Egypt. Being God, he could have done it all at once, instantly transporting his people to the promised land. But instead, God chose to bring Egypt to its knees through 10 specific plagues of judgment. Now, if you go through all the way through chapter 11, you'll, you'll discover these plagues, and most Bibles probably have a heading uh, in, in the section of Scripture that, that corresponds with the plague that's being described. And there are 10 of these, uh, the first one being the Nile River turned to blood, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 7. That then is followed by a plague of frogs. The land of Egypt is overrun by frogs. If that's not bad, then gnats, swarming insects, that gives way to flies. There's nothing more agitating than one fly. Could you imagine flies covering every square inch of your body? That's followed up by the death of the Egyptians' livestock. Then physically, there are boils and sores that break out on their bodies. That's followed by a severe hailstorm and then locusts. And then darkness for three days. And then the last plague, the most severe of all, is the death of the firstborn. So 10 specific plagues of judgment. Now, why did God specifically choose these plagues of judgment? Because it might seem like these are all random plagues. I mean, frogs. I mean, why did God choose to overrun the land of Egypt with frogs for crying out loud? Well, in chapter 12 of Exodus, the scripture tells us the reason that God chooses these specific plagues. God is saying that it's on all of the gods of Egypt I'm executing my judgments, for I am the Lord. Which means that the confrontation that we read about here, it's not simply a dispute between Moses and Pharaoh. It's not so much a conflict between Israel and Egypt, but ultimately this is a contest between God and Satan. This is a spiritual battle, one in which God is pitted, the one and only true God is pitted against all of the false gods of the Egyptians, the idols of the Egyptians. And so these 10 plagues then are specific judgments on the idols, the false gods that the Egyptians worshiped. Uh, that same truth is expressed over in Numbers chapter 33 where the scripture says, on their gods also the Lord executed his judgments. 
And so the Exodus then is one more instance of conflict in this invisible war that continually rages all around us between light and darkness, heaven and hell. It was an epic contest between God and the false gods of Egypt, which were really not gods, but were idols that were aligned with Satan and demonic hosts. So that in the end, God's people are set free. The idols of Egypt are revealed to be nothing, and the Lord God of Israel is proven to be the one and only God. And that's the whole point behind these plagues of judgment. So by performing these signs and these wonders, God is going to strike 10 mighty blows against Egypt's idols. And so the plagues are plagues of judgment, not only on the Egyptians, but also these false gods in whom they sought refuge. Now, I know that when we hear that word idols, we we tend to refer uh, to think that it's referring to something that may be ancient, uh, something more primitive, something that may be an issue in more third world cultures that bow down to figurines that have been fashioned by man's hands. And certainly, idols are not something that apply to us, right? Kind of reminds me of a story I heard uh, Dr. Tony Evans tell about a little mouse who went into the barn uh, to tell the chicken, the pig, and the cow, just thought I'd give y'all a heads up, Farmer Brown has just bought a mouse trap. To which the chicken, the pig, the cow, they said, oh, well, what's that to us? That doesn't sound like that's our problem. Sounds like that's your problem because you're the mouse. But again, the mouse just thought he would relay the warning and said, just thought I'd give y'all a heads up. Farmer Brown, he has bought a mouse trap. Well, a few days later, there was a snake that got caught in the mouse trap, and that snake had somehow slithered across the mouse trap. The trap had sprung on the snake and had caught the snake in the trap. And it wasn't very long before Mrs. Brown walked unsuspectingly by the mouse trap and she was suddenly bit by the snake. So Mrs. Brown has now been poisoned by the snake that had been caught in the mouse trap that Farmer Brown had bought. Well, she began to feel sick, and so she immediately goes and lays down, and Farmer Brown comes in and says, I see that you're sick. Is there something I can do for you? Mrs. Brown says to her husband, well, I think I need me some chicken soup. (laughs) And so Farmer Brown goes out to the barn, gets the chicken, (whistles) rings its neck, plucks its feathers, puts the chicken in the pot so Mrs. Brown, who's sick, can have some soup to ail her troubled soul. But here's the thing. She may be sick, but Farmer Brown, he's got to go back to work. He's got a farm. He's got all of these farm animals that he's got to tend to. So he gets some ladies in the community to come over the next morning to check on his sick wife while he goes back out to work. But he knows he's going to have to feed these ladies some breakfast. So Farmer Brown goes back out to the barn, and this time he gets the pig so that they can have some bacon and sausage to go along with the eggs that were provided so generously by the chicken. Unfortunately, the situation gets so bad that Mrs. Brown dies. The poison was too much for her body. They have a funeral. At the funeral, all the family and all the friends come over to the house. And Farmer Brown, he's got to feed all these folks. So he goes back out to the barn, and this time he gets the cow, and it's beef. That's what's for dinner. 
So here's the thing. The little mouse somewhere is saying to himself, I tried to tell him Farmer Brown bought a mouse trap. And the whole point is, Satan has a mouse trap, folks, but the thing is, we don't pay attention to it because we don't think it applies to us. We think the trap is for everybody else, but it's not for us until we begin to see the consequences. We begin to see the repercussions. And so it is with this thing called idolatry. We don't think it applies to us. Pastor, I think it applies to these ancient Egyptians that we're reading about, but certainly it doesn't apply to me. This issue of idolatry, it's more third world in nature. This is Old Testament stuff. Surely it's not New Testament stuff or issues that deal with life in this modern, sophisticated generation such as ours. Now, here's the thing. If that's what you think, then you are greatly mistaken. Because what we often fail to see is that the gods that these ancient Egyptians, or anyone else for that matter, the gods that they worshipped were always a means to an end. Various gods promised power or wealth and prosperity, uh, sex, pleasure, fertility, stability. And that's really what they were after, which is why they pursued these false gods. And the fact of the matter is, we're still prone to worship the same things today that they did then, only, only we don't do it in such crude terminology, bowing down to some wooden image or statue. But in our hearts, we still pursue the same things that these false gods of the Egyptians or the Persians or the Greeks and the Romans, we still pursue the same things that those false gods always represented. So idolatry then has always been the fundamental problem with humanity. All right, so let me give you just a little bit of background here as far as the ancient Egyptians, as far as their religious landscape, because this will really be helpful when we look at these plagues. Um, ancient Egyptian religion is what we would call polytheistic in nature. Now, Christianity is monotheistic. Uh, there is one God only one God. But ancient Egypt worshipped many gods. That's what polytheism means. In fact, it's estimated that there were some 2,000 gods or goddesses in the Egyptian pantheon. And each of these were associated with some particular element of nature or life in this world. But you could really take all of those gods and goddesses and sort of categorize them, uh, break them down into three main categories. There were gods of the sky, gods of the river, uh, the Nile River, and then there were gods of the land. And so there were 80 main deities, and most of these were lesser known and clustered around those which were more well-known. Perhaps you've heard some of the names of these ancient deities that the Egyptians worshipped, like Osiris and Isis. Osiris was, you know, one of the most important gods that the Egyptians worshipped, and it was believed that he controlled the cycle of the Nile. And his wife, her name was Isis. She was the supreme goddess associated with fertility. Uh, there was Horus, who was the god of the sky, Set, the god of chaos and storm. Uh, there was uh, Amun-Ra, who was the creator god, who was associated with the sun. 
Uh, there was Hathor, who was the goddess that protected women in childbirth. Uh, Toth, the god of wisdom, possessor of secrets. Uh, Geb was the god of the land. There was another goddess uh, of the sky. And so this was just sort of a little bit of a snapshot into what Egyptian religion uh, consisted of. Now, one thing that we've already seen is that Pharaoh himself was worshipped by the Egyptians. The Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was the incarnation or the embodiment of the gods. They believed that he was the mediator between the gods and the people. So that one Old Testament scholar has said this, the Egyptians described Pharaoh as eternal, worthy of worship and omniscient. He imbued Egypt with existence and power. They taught that he was really the life force and the soul of Egypt. And you remember from what we looked at last week, there was that serpent-crested crown that he wore that symbolized his, his deification and his majesty. And so that's why it's important in chapter 7, verses 8 through 13, that when God tells Moses and Aaron to cast down their staff so that it might become a serpent, it's a way of God demonstrating his sovereign power and his lordship. A reminder that the serpent has been cursed, belongs in the place of the dust. And yet it's one more promise, one more echo in Scripture of that promise whereby God is going to crush the serpent's head and deliver humanity from uh, the serpent's grip. So God is proving that he alone is God and that all of these so-called gods of Egypt are nothing but worthless idols. So here's the thing. You say, okay, pastor, were the gods of Egypt something or were they nothing? Because oftentimes when you read in Scripture, it seems like they were something. For example, God is executing his judgment on the gods of Egypt. If that's what chapter 12 says, if that's what Numbers 33 says, how can you say that the gods of Egypt were nothing if indeed they were something? Now think about it this way. They're nothing in the sense that they are no true gods. Uh, these are the inventions of man's sinful imagination. And yet, there's something in the sense that there's something to the worshipers themselves. And so, these worshipers are worshiping these false ideas, these false gods. And then what that does is it gives Satan, the evil one, and his demons a stronghold into their lives. So that... It's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that when pagans make sacrifices to their gods, ultimately they're sacrificing to demons. So that those who worship idols are giving worship to Satan and his minions. And they're giving Satan power over themselves and over their own lives. And so that's, that's the idea here. So you have e Egyptian culture is saturated in the worship of all of these false gods, and God's is God is going to execute his judgment on the false gods of Egypt and so prove that they are nothing, that he alone is deserving of worship, glory, and honor. Now, before I move on, I think it would be very beneficial for us if we just stopped for the time that remains and, and we just need to be reminded what does the Bible mean when it refers to this subject of idolatry? If it's the fundamental issue that besets fallen humanity, it's the number one issue of our time. 
It's not just an issue in our time. Listen, idolatry is the issue of our time. It's always been the issue with fallen humanity, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. But what exactly does the Bible mean when it's referring to idolatry? And as long as we believe that this is an issue that does not apply to us, then folks, we're dangerously close uh, when it comes to living under a delusion because it does apply to us as the number one issue of our humanity. So notice with me just a few things here. Number one, the definition of idolatry is something that you and I must understand. The definition of idolatry must be understood. What is it? What does the Bible mean when it refers to idolatry? Because the Bible refers to it over and over again. In fact, it's the number one sin that's mentioned more than anything else by far. So that you could say that the theme of the whole Bible, it's so essential that we have to return to this over and over again, that the core sin of man is idolatry. God created us to love him, to worship him above all things. We've been uniquely created in the image of God, and yet our sin consists of the fact that we've chosen a bunch of other things to love and worship more than God. And the whole story of the Bible is that God is confronting our idolatry. He's rescuing us from our, idol our idolatry and the worship of these false gods. Now, at its most basic level, idolatry involves the worship of the creature or the creation more than the creator himself. That's what idolatry really is. It's taking something in the created order, something... And usually it's a good thing, a gift. But then it's worshiping that above and beyond the creator himself. You remember the very first commandment that God's going to give in Exodus chapter 20, uh, a command that he's going to give to his newly redeemed people. It's this commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. And the language there, before me, it means in my sight, in my presence. God is saying nothing must come between you and me in your life. There's to be nothing else in your life that's to be found in the first place. You know, the Scripture says that God, he cannot lie. Uh, the Bible says that God, he cannot change. Let me, say, let me tell you something else that God cannot be, and it's second. God cannot, will not be second in your life. He will not be second. He is first and foremost. And so there's to be nothing else then from creation that I look to as my ultimate source. And idolatry is the worship of the creation rather than the creator. One person even expresses it this way. An idol is any unauthorized noun that has become ultimate in your life. You remember from language class what a noun is? A person, a place, a thing, or an idea? So an unauthorized noun would be this. It's, it, an idol is any person, place, thing, or idea that's elevated to godlike status in your heart so that it absorbs your imagination more than God does. It's anything you seek to give you what only God himself can provide. That's an idol. All right, so let's talk about that for just a second. 
All right, first, idols are anything that promises us life and security and joy apart from God. Anything that promises us a life of security and joy, happiness, and we go after that and we seek that apart from God, that's an idol. Which means that for most of us, idolatry is not going to manifest itself in bowing down to a stone statue in a temple somewhere. No, more often an idol is a good thing that you've turned into a God thing that then becomes a bad thing in your life. And all of us have at least one of these. Uh, we think about an idol. If this is present in my life, then I'll have, I'll have peace, I'll have security, I'll have joy. And so there are a lot of categories for the idols that we tend to enshrine. There are personal idols, uh, such as money, wealth, power, achievement, success, uh, health, fitness, physical beauty. All of these are ideas and things that oftentimes can become supreme to us personally within our heart. And then there are cultural idols. There are certain ideas and shared values oftentimes that a culture will have, and those values that are shared by the culture may not indeed be biblical values. And they then become idolatrous. That means that your politics can become your God. Any ideology that you possess can become your God. Science. By the way, science has become God in the hearts and lives of so many in our generation. And people who rule out the supernatural and they rule out uh, Judeo-Christian worldview because they've enshrined the God of science in their heart and they believe that science has got now all of the answers to solve all of the problems in life. Yes, science has become a false god. Uh, there are intellectual idols, such as education. Someone says, if I just have education, if I have this degree and that degree and those letters by my name, then that's going to bring me security in life. That's what's ultimate to me, and that can become your idol. So you fill in the blank. It could be anything. And the idea is a lot of folks look to these kinds of things for the hope and the meaning and the fulfillment in life that only God himself can provide. So an idol then is something that promises me safety, peace, and joy if only I base my life upon it and I build my life around it. Now notice secondly, uh, idols are rooted in our affections and reflected in our decisions. They're deeply rooted in our affections and they're reflected in our decision-making in life. Uh, so polytheistic cultures like the one we're looking at here in ancient Egypt, or whether it would be Greece or Rome for that matter, uh, they depicted virtually everything as a god. Uh, there were fertility gods, there were work gods, there were war gods, there were money gods. You go on down the line, and the idols that they came up with functioned as visual representations of some deified idea. Now, in our minds, we think, man, this is just so silly. Why in the world would anybody uh, carve a statue or, 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 or carve something from, from wood and then bow down to it and worship it and assign it some ultimate sense of meaning? You go to Isaiah chapter 44, and the prophet Isaiah deals with that very issue. It's, it's the height of folly and irony that a man goes out in the woods, and he cuts down a tree, 
And, and he cuts up the wood to, to make a fire, and then he fashions an idol from that wood while at the same time he's wearing himself out. He's thinking that he is going to be able to get some type of meaning and some type of strength from the works of his own hands. But the point is, there's always a deeper underlying issue beyond just the tangible object itself. It's rooted in the affections. There's some type of overarching desire deep within the person that leads that person then to assign some type of ultimate meaning to some outward object or idea. So the Egyptians, they fashioned images of their gods with their hands so as to depict the invisible and the intangible, what they believed was ultimate, and they latched onto that image because they were driven inwardly by the pursuit of the idea. Now, folks, listen, we've all been made to worship, and we will worship something. It is absolutely fundamental to your humanity that you worship. The fact that we've been made in the image of God, man is a worshiper by nature, and man will go hard after something that he or she believes is ultimate. And the problem with our humanity, our fallen humanity, is that it's not God that we seek. And so we've been made in the image of God, but now because of sin, here's what we do. We tend to make gods in our own image. And then we pursue these, we enshrine these, whether that be some idea of prosperity, that we, we think we've got to have this in order to really mean something and be something in life. I've gotta look like this in order to have some type of affirmation in my life. I've got to achieve this, I've gotta make it to the top of the, of the tower of success in order to truly have arrived because that's what's ultimate to me. The Bible uses language such as idolatry to describe those kinds of pursuits. Calvin said that the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's heart is built to crank out idols like General Motors is made to replicate vehicles. I mean, all the heart needs is just the right data, the right desire, and then the heart will idolize it. And so the factory of your heart always builds its idols around its affections. And so affections, this pertains to what you love, what you desire. I want the idol to do something for me. Ezekiel chapter 14, the, the Lord says to the prophet Ezekiel, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and they've set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. So God's saying there, my people have set up idols in their hearts so that their affections are not for me. Their pursuits are not of me. I'm not the pleasure that they seek. I'm not the priority that they pursue. Now, it's interesting. He's speaking to his own people there. Because, listen, the Israelites, they're not going to be that far across the Red Sea before they're bowing down to the old gods of Egypt. Exodus chapter 32, they're going to make an image of a golden calf and dance around it, and these are your gods. What was the golden calf a symbol of? Well, it was a symbol of prosperity. And, and it goes back to so many of those ideas that were worshipped in, in Egyptian culture. And idolatry is, is the, the constant issue that God is having to warn his people against all throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says things like this to the church, flee from idolatry. 
Avoid all manner of covetousness in your life because that's the essence of idolatry, wanting something, making something ultimate in my life so that if I don't have it, I don't have fulfillment. If I don't have it, I don't have joy and happiness. Now, the thing is, you can say you worship God with your mouth all you want to, but what determines what you're really worshiping? What, what direction is your life headed in? Because idolatry is something that's rooted in the affections, and listen, it's reflected in the decisions. I can say I love and worship God, but is that reflected in the decisions that I make in my life? Because whatever you worship, it's going to be reflected in your decision-making. And then one third thing that I would say would be this. Idols are often strongholds of demonic influence in a person's life. That's the whole subject of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And you see this fully on display with Egypt. And the point is, wherever idolatry is rampant, so are demons and demonic activity. And it's a tragedy that we fail to recognize the spiritual forces that are at work because in our time, listen, Satan has figured out that he can do far more damage by keeping himself cloaked. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.4 says that he will show up as an angel of light. And he'll take an idea, which may be a good idea in its proper place, but then he'll take that idea and make it ultimate so that it usurps the place of God in a person's life. And then before you know it, you've got an entire false religion <laughs> built around that idea. You don't believe me? Look at the false religion associated with the pride flag and all things LGBTQ plus in our culture. So that now, now, you've got movements among certain segments of Christianity that have wanted to take the pride flag and, and, and baptize it, drape it around the pulpit, celebrate the virtue of, of diversity and inclusion and all such as that. But folks, what it's taken is it's taken an idea, twisted it, and enshrined that idea that puts man at the center. And if there's anything that the Scripture tells me is that God resists the proud. There's nothing that's more offensive to a holy God than the pride of sinful man. And so we, we pursue our idols, ideas uh, that may be good ideas when kept in their proper understanding, but we enshrine those ideas and we pursue them and we make them ultimate. Now, the description of idolatry is something that needs to be considered. Now, I'm not going to get a whole lot further than this, just to be honest. This is where I want you to go to Romans chapter 1 with me for just a moment. You go to the first chapter of Romans because the Apostle Paul, uh, he, he deals with how society, human society, descends into the chaos that comes from idolatry. He explains it in great detail uh, from verse 18 all the way through the end of Romans chapter 1. The first commandment, no other gods before me. The second commandment, remember, it's related to the first. You shall not make for yourself a graven image. That is, don't come up with your own idea of who you think I am and then bow down to that idea. So idolatry then 
is, is, is assigning thoughts to God that are not true to his character. God says, don't draw a picture in your mind or on paper of who you think I am and then worship that image. God says, if you want to know who I am, let me tell you what I've done. I've taken a selfie. Click, click. Jesus Christ. That's who I am. He's the image of the invisible God, according to what the Scripture says. You want to know who he is, what he's like? Look to Christ. But idolatry is ascribing ideas to God that are not worthy of him, that aren't true of his character. A.W. Tozer said this, among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. Because at its essence, it's a libel on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is. It substitutes for the true God, one that's made after its own likeness, and always this God will conform to the image of the one who created it, and it will be base or pure, cruel or kind, according to the moral state of the mind from which it emerges. So it's man making a God in his own image, which means that it's not simply bowing down to a stone or a piece of wood. Now, that may be how you worship your idol, but at the root level, it's assuming God to be something that he is not. And this is the fundamental sin of fallen humanity. Bowing down to some other God and attaching our own ideas to God, which are not true of his character. It's reimagining him in our own image and likeness. So in the first chapter of Romans, Paul describes the way that human society has sunk into the depths of idolatry. And, and here you find an, a description of this interaction between God and humanity that ultimately explains the source of all worldviews, whether that be the ancient Egyptian worldview from the Exodus, the world of the Exodus, or whether that be the Greco-Roman worldview that was true of the first century world into which the church was sent out on mission whether it be true of the world that we live in today. So, so look at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. The Bible says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they're without excuse. So here's what Paul's saying here. Uh, first, he's saying that man has access to evidence for God from creation itself. Uh, it's Psalm 19. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. There's evidence for who he is, general revelation. God has revealed himself, and all of creation preaches this message to man because the existence of the universe can't be explained as a product of natural causes alone. Why does two plus two equal four? Why is something that goes up, why must it always come down? Why are these mathematical Scientific laws written into the very fabric of our existence. Where does all of that come from? It's evidence for objective truth. It's evidence 
for an objective lawgiver. That's Paul's point here in Romans chapter 1. Now, that's true, just as true for us as it was for Paul's day as it was for the ancient Egyptians. And then notice the second thing. Due to his sin, man suppresses the evidence for God. So in spite of all of this evidence from creation, and now all of these generations removed from the death and resurrection of Jesus, we've got the historical record of God's activity whereby he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. But notice Paul's saying the issue is that through the unrighteousness of men, they suppress the truth. That is, they press down the truth. Because of our own sinful disposition, we're naturally inclined to resist God and to pursue the sinful dictates of our own heart. And so much a part of man's fallen nature that every person has this built-in compelling desire to suppress God's truth. That's what Paul is saying here. So we've got access to God through creation. Due to sin, man suppresses evidence for God. Now look at this. The third thing, man then creates idols to take the place of God. Look at verse 21. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's interesting, you look at Egyptian hieroglyphics and you see the, the deities like Osiris and Isis and Horus and all of these other gods in the Egyptian pantheon. They're represented with sort of a humanoid figure with like the head of a cow or a hawk or a frog. That's starting to make sense now? Hmm? There was a god in the Egyptian pantheon named Hecate that was depicted as a man uh, with the head of a frog and it was believed by the Egyptians that frogs were to be worshipped and so here's what God is saying you want to worship a part of creation that you think is ultimate let me just overrun you with frogs wow so man creates these idols to take the place of God Nancy Piercy, listen to this. She, this, is, this is so good. She says, the most fundamental decision that we all face over the course of our lives is what we will recognize as the ultimate reality, the uncaused source and cause of our existence because everything else in our worldview depends upon that initial decision. That's why Joshua is going to stand before the children of Israel as they're on the verge of entering the promised land well after the exodus, well after their years of wandering around in the wilderness. And Joshua's going to say, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, you choose this day whom you're going to serve. Whether the gods your fathers served back across the river in Egypt or the gods of the Amorites and the Canaanites in whose land you've now come to dwell. But as for me and my house, Joshua says, we will serve the Lord. Amen. That's who we're going to serve. And then... The fourth thing, God gives man up to the consequences of his idols. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. God gives them up in the lust of their hearts to their own impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
There's a breakdown in their sexual ethic. There's a perversion now that's practiced in, in the way that they use their bodies. Their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. And the point is, God is just giving man over. He's surrendering man up to the consequences of his idolatry. Those very things that he's enshrined in his heart, that he's gone hard after in his life. If that's not God, here's, here's what God's saying. I'm going to give you up to experience the consequences of pursuing that and making that ultimate in your life. And you want to know where ultimately it's going to lead you? It's going to lead you to destruction. You get into chapter 2 of Romans, and Paul says, you have no excuse, O men. Are you one to judge? He basically says, you've been there yourself, and you would be there yourself were it not for the grace of Almighty God in your life. So the point is, the gospel is all about God's rescue plan. God's rescue involving the death and the resurrection of his own son. God has gone through great lengths to rescue man from his idolatry, to reveal to humanity who he is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you will not experience satisfaction, fulfillment, joy in your heart and in your life if you make something ultimate and that is not the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here's the thing, when Jesus is first and foremost in your life and you're in right relationship with God, then you're free and you're able to enjoy all of those good things in life that God has created well within their boundaries. Because the creator knows what's best for his creation. So things like sexuality within the proper boundary of marriage that God has designed between one man and one woman, that's a wonderful gift to be celebrated to the glory of God. Your ability to provide for your family through work and through effort, through earning money. That's a good thing. So long as it's kept in its proper boundaries as intended by the creator when he's first and foremost in your life and when stuff is not the God of your life or money is not the God of your life or ambition and success is not the God of your life. No, when Christ is first and foremost, then you're free. You're free. And you can work hard to the glory of God. Now, I've got to stop here. My time is gone. Would you stand with me for prayer? See, the thing is, when we look at these plagues that God pours out on the ancient Egyptians, it'd be real easy for us to want to say, well, that was then, this is now. That's what they deserved because they were so crude in the way that they pursued idols. But we're, we're far more sophisticated than that in, in our generation, right? Wrong. Because the fact of the matter is, all of us left up to ourselves are idolaters in heart. Were it not for the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, because listen, the plagues of God's judgment for my sin were poured out upon Jesus in my place at the cross. Amen. So that now I could be forgiven of my sin reconciled to the God who made me in his image who loves me 
You see, the thing is, whatever, whatever false god you worship will demand a sacrifice. It always does. False gods and idols always demand their sacrifices. If it's the God of success at work, I'll tell you what you'll sacrifice to get it. You'll sacrifice your family. Even your own physical health. If it's, if it's the God of sex that you worship in your heart, I'll tell you what you sacrifice to get it. You'll sacrifice personal purity. You'll objectify others that are made in the image of God and reduce them to nothing more than an object for your own gratification. It's an ugly sacrifice, isn't it? Yeah, the gods demand their sacrifices, but you see, here's what makes Christianity unique is that the God who loves you, who knows you, recognizes your own sin. He gave his own son to be the sacrifice for your sin. <laughs> so that the only sacrifice that a holy God demands is the one that he's already provided. Would you bow your heads with me, close your eyes. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and you'd say, Pastor, there are some idols in my life, and you know what? The Holy Spirit, perhaps he's... He singled those out maybe in your heart and in your life. You know what those things are for you that you tend to make ultimate. The things that if they were removed from your life, then your life would not be worth living. Those are often the things that we worship, and that can be anything. But the question I want to ask you is, is the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost in your heart and life? Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Apart from me, there is no salvation. There is no satisfaction. There is no life. Lord, this is a serious subject, and I just pray that you would so impress upon our hearts the seriousness of it. And Lord, that we would not worship and give ourselves to the pursuit of things. Parts of this creation, Lord, that we enshrine and we worship more than the creator. God, keep us from worshiping the gift more than the giver of the gift. As the hymn writer said, be thou my vision, O Lord, O Lord of my heart. In Jesus' name, amen.